Good morning, church family. Thank you for tuning in and, and being with us this morning, albeit virtually. We're, we're so grateful to know that we're together in this moment, in this time. And I love this video. I, I've loved all these videos, but I love the way the timing is is so perfect. I love the way God's timing is so perfect. And and this video, I know a lot of a lot of you parents and, and kids, you're you're starting school this past week, and there's so much that's just different in this season. I want you to know that that we're praying for you too that we care. God cares about what's going on with you too. You are an intricate part of this fellowship as well. Speaking to you kids, and and I love that what he said, as we press through this difficult season, I love that idea of pressing. I love to say press into Jesus or press into the Lord through this time, and I, I think that's what that video is saying, because what's the promise? Galatians 6, 9, that if you don't lose heart, don't grow weary in doing good, don't lose heart, because you shall reap a harvest. There is going to be some fruit that comes through this. And don't just take my word for it. Pull up Galatians 6, 9 and look for yourself. God promised that. That's God's promise for you. So keep pressing into Jesus. Press into him through this season. But just a couple things. I just want to accentuate. Marsha did such a great job on the announcements. I just want you to know, um, yes, excited about the Thrive group, the Jesus Among Secular Gods. I will be sending those videos out to you probably tomorrow so you have some time. They're 20-minute videos and you don't even need to really watch them, listen to the audio, but they're really good to kind of get the juices flowing as you're going through that study for the discussion. So that's going to happen. And then two, I just want to touch on this. This is so exciting. I don't know if it's been reading through the one-year Bible and going through the book of Nehemiah and being rekindled, that it's time to build. Now it's the time to start moving. I just really felt that was what kind of thrusted me from from hearing the Lord saying, "It's, it's time to get together corporately. It's time to gather as the church. And that's what's led the church in the park situation, but I just want, I just want to throw this out to you. I want to encourage you in this church family. Please approach this respectfully. Please approach us with the mentality that we want to be witnesses to this not yet believing world as we're going to be in a public place in a park. Please don't, don't let our expression of liberty be used to stumble somebody else saying, well, what are they doing? Are they above the law? Are, are they apart from this? Listen, it is my heart. It is our heart that we do this in such a way that people say, I want to be a part of that. Not, I don't, not, they're breaking. I don't, I'm afraid to be over there. We want to have the heart to say, what's going on over there? I want to be a part of it. They're loving, they're respectful, they're worshiping, but they're doing it in a way that's above reproach. So please, I'll send out some different things about some specifics, but it is not my heart at all to put any of you under any law. It's my heart to gather in worship but to do it above reproach. Remember what that means, above reproach. It means that when stones get hurled at us or when accusations get thrown at us, they don't stick because there's just no truth to them. And that's what I want us to do. We're going to meet, and it's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. But I just, please, I want to do it the right way. And I'll, again, I'll be aware. I'll send some emails out. If you're not on our email list and you'd like to be, we're going to be sending a lot of emails. Email me, brian at ccsanramon.org. Go to our website. Sign up there at the bottom of the homepage. We just want to make sure you have what you need and you're, you're on this email list. If you, if you think you are and you're not getting emails, email me there as well. I want you to be a part of it. But let's get into our Bible study. We're going to be Exodus chapter 23 this morning, so you can open your Bibles there. I want to tell you, I, I love the way God sets this up. I love, and, and I, I hope nobody had any, any lightning strikes or fires in their area. I'm not trying to celebrate that. I hope everyone's okay with that. But I love the way God sets these things up on a Sunday. I and mean, we could have a radical lightning storm or a thunderstorm on like a Wednesday, and that would be, that'd be cool, and most of us would probably be in awe of the Lord, but not like on a Sunday. Not like on a Sunday when we're studying the book of Exodus, when God has been doing those incredible things already before the people that we're talking about here, before the very situation that we're at, they're at the mountain. And God has just done with even greater magnitude than what many of us heard. I was in the garage this morning and the lightning was striking. I was jumping. The, the, the thunder was rumbling. It was making me jump because it was so loud. But that's the awesome power of Almighty God. We can't conjure those things up. We as human beings, we can't do that. But God doesn't even break a sweat when he does some of those things, releases some of those things. So it's just, it sets it up perfectly. So Exodus 23 is where we're going to be. Pray with me and we'll get started. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. 
And Father, we are so grateful to gather. We're so grateful for this opportunity. We're so grateful to be able to open your word. We're grateful that it goes out through these, through these internet media possibilities. God, it just, it goes out to where you want it to go and it doesn't return void. And Father, we're just grateful that you've allowed us to take advantage, to use to, to your glory all these different things that you've put at our disposal. May you continue to open doors that we can walk through. May you continue, God, to close doors that you don't want us to walk through. Would you continue to lead us and speak to us and train us and equip us for all those great works you've created for us beforehand? God, we want to be obedient. We want to be faithful. We want to trust you. We want to see you. We want others to see you and come to know you as we have. So, Father, we just ask that you do that this morning, and we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open up this study this morning with a saying. Maybe you've heard this saying. Maybe you haven't, but, I, but, but maybe, let me just say it. Have you ever heard this? There is no right way to do the wrong thing. Have you ever heard that saying? I know my kids have because I've told my kids that many times. But think about this. There is a way to do a right thing the wrong way. But there's no right way to do the wrong thing. Because if it's the wrong thing, it's just the wrong thing. Now, now now that you have heard of it, do you agree with it? Now, I I would venture a guess that somebody listening either now or listening to this at some later time, maybe you're, you're not so sure. Now, why would I say that? Because this is the very issue that is kinda at the crux of our society. What is the right thing? What is the wrong thing? What is right and what is wrong? I read an article just this week, and the author writes, and I quote, nothing in this world is ever completely right or completely wrong because it's all relative to the individual, end quote. That was the quote that I read, and that is so many people's worldview. You have friends. You've probably had people tell you that who would say, this is true. Truth is relative. And by the way, this relative, I want to make you make sure you understand what that means. Relative means in relative relation to, connected to, in proportion to something else. And and what they're saying is it's relative to my individual perception. All truth is relative to how me as an individual perceives it. So we want to say, well, is that true? Well, here's how the argument goes. For someone to say it's raining outside or it's thunder, it's lightning, like we all experienced this morning, or did we, right? There may be somebody who said, it didn't rain in my house. I didn't see any, any lightning. I didn't hear any thunder. So that's true for you, but that wasn't true for me. I didn't experience. Why? Because truth is based upon our individual perceptions. We go, oh, okay, we'll give you that one. Circumstantial situations, things that are tied to your geography or your specific location on planet Earth. Like, okay, there can be some differences there. Another argument is this. For us in America, we drive on the right side of the road. That is what the law states. That is what we do. But you know, you know, in other parts of the world, they drive on what is called the wrong side of the road or the left side, but the wrong side to us. So when we say it's right to drive on the right side. They say, well, well, that's right for you, but that's not right for me. My individual perception, living in the society that I live in under the laws that have been enacted says I need to do this. So again, argument, truth is relative. It's in relation to the individual's perception. But let's now move this topic into the moral arena. Now we're talking morality, behavior, ethics, interactions between human beings. What is a noble moral character look like? What does an immoral character look like? These are the things that we've been talking about in the past three weeks in the book of Exodus, starting with God's top 10. And then last week, God's heart for our relationships, what God wants us as his people to do. So listen, has all of this been relative? What did I define that? Relative. Has all this been subject to individual perception? Put yourself in the text right here. Two, two and a half million plus people all gathered at the base of the mountain. Are they looking over and they're saying, hey, is that going to be a truth for you? 
Or is that just going to be a truth for me, right? Nobody's looking at the other person saying, hey, are you going to receive that as truth or is that not truth, right? All their eyes are either up on this mountain in absolute awe or majesty or they're facing down to the ground in awe because they're trembling in fear. But bottom line, nobody's basing morality, what we've been talking about, on individual perception. Why? Because they know clearly God is speaking. They know without question God is giving them his law. It's not an if this, then that. It's just this. Here is my word. Here are my commands. That's what we've been talking about. And nobody would even dare question it. Why? Because it's coming from God. And they're hearing it, literally, physically seeing it, all that God has been doing. So as we look at this situation, it's no longer relative to the individual perception. Is it still relative? Listen, yes. But it's relative in connection with, in relation with the one who spoke it, God himself. Which means this. If it's in connection to God, now it's absolute. Why do I say that? Because God cannot, does not, will not ever change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if our morality is connected to one who is unchanging now, it's still relative to him, but because it's relative to him now, it's absolute. So I want you to see this. Look at some of these things. When we think of our morality, right and wrong, it's not like circumstantial evidence that change when our circumstances change. It's not like situational experiences that are connected to things that change. It's connected to God himself who does not change. So there is a right and wrong. Right is morally good, justified, acceptable as it is relative to God, as it relates to God. Wrong is immoral, morally bad, unjustifiable, unacceptable relative to God as it is inconsistent with what his word says. So that is his moral law for the conduct of creation for all human beings. And it's not like the weather or different laws. It doesn't ever change. It doesn't have to change because it's perfect. It's eternal. Once it's spoken, it's eternal. So look at some of these verses. This is Numbers 23, verse 19. This is from the New Living Translation because I like the words in this a little bit better. But it says this, God is not a man, so he does not lie. Remember a few weeks ago, John taught about the limitations of God, that God does have some limitations. A great study, go back to the website and find it. But as God has limitations, well, he has at least one. John gave us more, but he has at least one, right? We see it here. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. When he speaks, it's truth. So he says, he does not lie. Look at this. He's not human, so he doesn't change his mind. Right? That's so popular in our culture. I'd be like, well, that was true then, but it's not true now. Listen, that is, that's a false statement in and of itself. God does not change his mind. He doesn't have to change his mind. Since he's perfect, what he speaks is perfect. It doesn't ever need to change. So he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Rhetorical question, no. Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Rhetorical question, no. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Speaking of the consistency, the moral purity, the perfection, the holiness of God, there's not even like a tiny shadow of changing. There is zero darkness in he who is light. But I'm just showing you the consistency, the perfection, the inerrancy. But what does all this mean in the conversation that we're talking about? about sense morality is relative connected to in proportion to god himself because that's what we're studying he's speaking here then then the statement that we've been looking at is true there's no right way to do the wrong thing because there is right and there is wrong before god and if it's wrong before god listen it will always be wrong before god there's no, there's no wiggle room, there's no justification, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. So there is a right way and a wrong way. That's where this intro is coming from because that's where we're still at here in the book of Exodus. That's what God has been teaching his people and all of us. As Moses now is up on Mount Sinai with the Lord serving as a mediator because that's what the people wanted him to do. Remember they said last week, we read in chapter 21, I think they said, they said don't, don't let the Lord talk to us anymore. Maybe it was chapter 20. 
Moses, you go, you be our mediator. So that's what's going on. But don't forget, this is God still speaking. We are reading what would be in Old Testament red letters because these are words from the Lord. This is God speaking to his people, expounding upon the Ten Commandments, explaining them more thoroughly, giving us more practical examples of how we can apply them to our lives. So we're going to approach it the same way. Be reminded yet again, this is God's heart for our relationships with the people around us. This is how you and I, as Christians, are to function in this society that we have been called to be salt and light witnesses for Jesus. The same way God is speaking to his people who are to be the city on the hill, the people who are gonna reflect that there is a God in Israel. They're, they're told to keep the same conduct that we now in Christ are called to keep. But Jesus sums it all up for us saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these commandments, all the law hangs on these two things. So we're still looking at that. So there's a right way and a wrong way. Let's, let's see what that looks like in some of the context that, the, that, the, 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 that God lays out for us. So Exodus 23 verse 1. It says this, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. This is amazing to me, but you're going to see these first three verses too. They are so perfect. They are so relevant to our current culture right now. But verse one just says, don't spread fake news. Don't circulate a false report. Don't post something or repost something that you are kind of curious whether it's true or not. Christians, don't do it. So much, so much problems are happening in our culture right now because this is is what our social media feeds are full of right we just circulate all this stuff that at best is half true but if it's only half true it's still half a lie which means we can't figure out what is going on and it causes confusion and it causes uncertainty and god doesn't want that in this world it's going to be there's no social media it's word of mouth you only hear one side of the story you don't know really what took place god says to us don't circulate that if you if it even involves you then you need to go back to that person figure out what's going on before you spread it on to anyone else don't don't gossip. Don't let those things leave your lips. It causes problems. And God doesn't want us to do that. He's even commanding us not to do that. Remember, I'm amazed at how the Lord God, the one who's created heaven and earth, the one who, who inhabits eternity, takes a moment and says, hey, I want you to know this. Don't spread false reports. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that God would condescend, would descend to a place and say, hey, I love you so much, I need you to know this. Don't gossip. Don't spread fake news. Don't, don't lie to each other. Don't be a false witness, he says. Don't throw your hand into some situation that is going to put you alongside a deceitful plot. Don't come alongside the side of a conspiracy. Be somebody who is a truthful witness, a light bearer, an ambassador of Christ, someone who reflects who God is. God is truth. God is light. God is love. Verse 2 He says, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Again, think how relevant this is. You see a mob of people. We've got cities all over our country where this is happening. You've got a mob of people who are heading to a place solely bent on doing evil, destroying property, hurting people, causing chaos. Evil, don't join in with them. You've been able to discern that is not going to end well. I know where all of this is headed. And God's word to us is don't follow them. Don't go along with the crowd simply because it's the crowd. Majority isn't always right. And as I think about some of you kids, and I think about all of us Christians, this this applies to all of us. But I want you to know, sometimes, oftentimes, we have to stand alone in that situation. Or at least, we stand as the only one, but we're never alone. Because even though we're not following the crowd, we're already following Jesus. We're seeking to obey his command. And even though it may feel like you're alone, you're never really alone because God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you're following, but I want you to know sometimes our whole workplace is going to take a stance that says we're going this way. And you've got the, the spirit of God testifying in your heart. Hey, that end game, that's evil. That blasphemes my name, that degrades my truth. Listen, there's going to come a time, Christians, I think we're on the precipice of this. 
And God says to us, don't join in that mob. Don't come alongside that crowd. There's going to be a time to take a stand. I think that time is very, very, very near. For some of us, it's already here. But God's word to us is don't go along with it. Go against the crowd. Go against the grain. In this world, we are called to walk a narrow road. So separate yourself from that situation. Somebody says, well, why? What if I'm, I'm not doing anything in particular, but I'm just kind of going along with it, but I'm not saying anything? I say this to you, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. There's no right way for your association there to somehow turn out for some right thing because that's the wrong way to go about it. God commands us to do something different. He says, don't testify in a situation where you know the motive is to pervert justice. We're gonna see a lot of verses here that would would testify to God being a God of justice. God cares about justice. So in this situation, think of a judicial situation, a court of law. There's there's maybe a, a, a trial that's going to take place. Maybe you're a juror. Or maybe you're being called on for a witness. And you call and you kind of know the situation, but not really. But they call you in and, and they say, hey, here's what you're going to do. Here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to say you witnessed. And you're thinking, well, I didn't witness that. In fact, I don't even know that that happened. It didn't go down like that from my vantage point. At that point, God says, then you need to absolve yourself from the situation and not testify in that matter because don't be used to pervert justice. Don't be used to turn others away from the truth. And I love that because that is, is, is inconsistent with who we've been called to be. We are beacons of light, beacons of truth, salt and light, ambassadors of Christ. So God's word to his people, don't do it that way. Verse three, he says, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Think about this, this is so powerful. In the context of justice, yet again, maybe a court setting, God says, don't show any partiality. Don't show an unfair bias or a prejudice in your heart to a person simply based upon what you think you can see and know from the outside. How powerful is it? Again, these first three are so pertinent to our culture, so relevant for us today. Don't judge only from the outside. And for us, we really can't judge at all because all we can judge is from the outside. So in this situation, he says, don't show favoritism to anyone. Don't show favoritism to the rich just because they're rich. Don't show favoritism to the poor because they're poor. That's a perversion of justice. Being wealthy doesn't put you above the law. Being poor doesn't give you an excuse to break the law, right? It's not about what you look like on the outside. It's what did you do? What's the conduct and character of your life? Is what you did right and wrong based upon God's absolute truth and authority, his word? And it applies to everybody. It's over all of our heads. Nobody is outside the word of God. We're all underneath it, and that's what God wants to do. So we're thinking, why? Well, again, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. God's word to his people, be honest, be fair, seek justice God's way, do not show partiality. And we say, well, why would God be so concerned about that. He's going to tell us twice in these verses. And again, we're seeing a couple things God tells us twice. God himself is speaking here. The one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's not like he's like, man, did I, did I forget to mention that part to them? No, it's that important that he wants to mention it twice. That he says, I don't want you to show partiality. And again, why? Because God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't give an unfair bias or favoritism to anyone. I put several verses in your study guide to be able to see that. God doesn't judge by the outside. When God makes a decision, it's because he sees the heart. He sees everything about that person. He sees everything they have done, everything they're going to do. He sees the hidden things, the character that is within their very being. We talk about, I guess, reputation is, is who people think you are. Character is who you really are. God is never swayed by your reputation. He sees your character. He sees who you are when you think nobody's looking. When you're all at home by yourself, whatever you do, God sees that. He knows your character. That's what he's talking about here. We are to seek God's face, his heart to do the same, but not showing partiality. To just use the word of God to apply to that situation, the spirit of God to give us discernment through the situation. Verse four, he says, if you meet your enemy's ox, you're gonna love this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. 
if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. I mean, again, picture the Lord God of all creation saying, hey, I know I need to tell you this. Or I know you need to know this because I know your human hearts. I know the condition of what you're going to be tempted to do. But he says, so let me paint this picture clear for you. If you have an en- if you have a neighbor and that neighbor is your enemy or that neighbor has made it clear he hates you and then you see his ox or his donkey going on a walkabout, going astray without him, running off, he says, I don't want you to see it and think this is going to be hilarious. Man, I, I'm going to drop a few pieces of hay so I can lead that horse, that donkey, or I can lead that, that ox off a cliff and die so I can say, hey, how's it coming with the harvest now? Hey, how's your livelihood happening now? We're thinking that's not what God wants us to do. He's saying, well, wait a minute. Check your heart. He says, I, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, as you would want to be loved. You would want somebody else to see your ox or your donkey and lead it back and return that to you. Listen, even your enemies, even someone who hates you. He says another situation, you see your neighbor's donkey. I love that he says, you see your neighbor's donkey. God's like, I see you, you know, peeling the blinds open. You're watching this situation. You know what's going on, but you want to refrain from it. You're like, oh, I really don't want to get involved with that. My tendency is just, I hope I get a good picture that I can post that would be funny at my neighbor's expense. And God says, don't do that. You see your, don- your neighbor's donkey is buckled under the weight of the load that it is carrying. That donkey can't get up. You see that your neighbor's trying to shift the weight or trying to shoulder some of that weight, trying to lift it up, and you're sitting there, you got nothing else to do. You're fully able. Then God says, you shall, you shall surely go and help them. Listen, even if they hate you, God says. Your tendency may be you want to avoid it, but God says, don't. Surely go and help them. Do the right thing. Love your neighbor as yourself, even your enemy, even those who hate you. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago, but a few, a few years ago now, my wife and I, we'd purchased this kitchen table. And I say we, okay, she purchased the kitchen table. I, I was, I'm pretty, pretty sure, I was sick. I was homesick that day. And she's like, hey, I found this great sale. They're, they're selling these tables. They're like X amount off. I, I, I bought it. You're like, it's, it's, it's ours. And I go and I see this thing. I grab myself out of bed. All right, I'll go, I'll help you. I bring my truck over there. This is like that thick. It's like three or four inches thick granite top table. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not feeling up to my best stuff. We're going to get this table. All right. They help us load it in the truck. We bring it back to the house and we're trying to get this out of the truck into our house. And this thing is so heavy. This is like donkey buckling heavy. And in case you're wondering, I'm the donkey in this situation. So I've pulled this table out. It's literally on my back. I'm like stuck. I'm like, my wife's pregnant at the time. She can't do a whole lot. So I'm like, hey, go get the wheelbarrow. Figure something out because like I'm just buckled under the weight of this. But here's the catch. I hear cars driving by. My neighbors driving by. I'm like thinking, you're driving, which means you're not blind. And if you're not blind, you can see this isn't okay. Like I'm clearly buckling under the weight of this table. And nobody stops. Everybody refrains from helping me in my time of need. I'm just thinking, that's what God is saying. Christians, don't be that way. Don't see someone in need. Clearly have time to be able to help them and just be like, nah, I don't care about that. God says, that's not loving your neighbor as yourself. That's not reflecting who I am. Be willing to let God interrupt your life and come along some, come along someone in need. And I love that he doesn't say, and then write a note. You know, he says, you return, you return your neighbor's ox. Make sure you write a note so that he's going to give you credit for what you did. You're good. He says, no, don't even write a note. Don't even have a conversation about it. Let your actions do the talking. Do it because it's right. Do it because there's a right way and a wrong way. And you, because you love the Lord, you, because you're trusting God to help you love your neighbor, even those enemies or those who hate you, you do that first because that's what God has done for you. Do it that way and let those actions be seen and let God work it out what he's gonna wanna work out. But just think about that. You know what your neighbor would think if you come strolling up to his ox, with his ox, open the gate, put it in there and walk away. 
you think, this guy just saved my livelihood. This woman just came to my aid and loved my family when I've done nothing for them. That's the whole kindness that can lead people to repentance. That's how God starts to work in somebody's heart who has been so antagonistic to him. There's always a big picture. There's always bigger layers that are going on. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual battle that is going on. So as we do the right thing, God can use that to testify his goodness in somebody else's heart. We want to be about that stuff. We want God to do that. Christians, don't ever forget. God used love like that to transform this world once before. He can, and he wants to use love like that in you and I to transform this world again. We are here for such a time as this. So be faithful. Do the right thing. Do it the right way. Verse 6 says, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So here's verse 6, that that second time I was referring to earlier, where God mentions partiality, where he says, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor. Don't show partiality to the poor, taking the side of the rich, simply because the, the one testifying in the dispute is poor. Right? Just being poor doesn't make you wrong. Just being rich doesn't make you right. Don't show partiality. Don't pervert justice. Do do some due diligence to find out what happened honestly at the situation. I want to show you this slide. I found this slide. This is Lady Justice. This is a statue that is in front of a courthouse in London. And it goes it goes way back. I couldn't even pinpoint the actual origins of where this came from, but I just want you to see some of the things that you see here. Notice first, the thing that stuck out for, stood out first to me is the, the scales are balanced, perfectly balanced. Right, that's justice. God has already covered that. In this situation, remember, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stripe for it. He says, the penalty should match the crime. That's justice. Then notice the sword in Lady Justice's left hand, right? Authority. The power, the sword of authority. But then, this one's a little bit more subtle. Notice how she's blindfolded. I want you to understand, that does not mean justice is supposed to be blind, It means justice is without partiality. It means it doesn't even matter what the people look like. It doesn't even matter what they sound like. It doesn't even matter their backstory. It doesn't even matter one iota what's on the outside. It matters what they did. What is the actions of their life? What happened in the circumstance? And then you make the determination, that's justice. Were their actions right or wrong? Righteous or wicked? Are they innocent? or guilty in accordance to God's unchanging absolute moral law. That's the way it's supposed to work out. God says here, I do not want the innocent judged. I do not want the wicked justified. That is a perversion of justice. Now I know some of us, we know that this happens. Some of us may even felt like we're, we're a victim of this, that, that we've gone to a human court, we've gone before a human judge, and we felt that wasn't justice. That's not how it was supposed to go. Someone innocent is being punished. Someone guilty is being exonerated. And maybe you feel like I'm on one of those sides. I want you to know that does happen in human courts, but that will never happen in God's court. That will never, never, never happen before God. No one innocent is going to be judged. No one wicked is going to be exonerated. God says here, I will not justify the wicked. God will never make a mistake. God will never make a decision because he only has half the story. God never has to guess and I hope it turns out. God is never duped by a lie. He sees perfectly. He knows all things. And notice again, he will not justify the wicked. And what is so beautiful about this is we need to look no further than Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. That is an example of God's perfect justice. God sending his son to pay the penalty that our sin accrued. When we think about some of these things, we've gone through a lot. There's been, there's been at least one. Come be honest with yourself. There's been at least one that you're like, yeah, I refrained from helping my, my neighbor when his donkey buckled under the weight or whatever it is. I, I'm guilty of breaking the law. And if we're guilty of breaking one, we're guilty of breaking it all, right? Less than perfect. But, but we're told by the Apostle Paul that the wages of sin is death. So the price of my sin, God's justice says I have to die. 
I've sinned. I'm less than perfect. I have to die. In the Old Testament, God set up a sacrificial system where you could come and lay your hands on a sacrificial lamb or a dove. There's a lot of different opportunities that you can do that, but you can lay your hands on an innocent animal. That animal's innocent blood dies to temporarily cover, to to enact justice on your behalf. So when you think about God being just and how we are guilty, we are deserving of death, that's where Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to take their place. I'm going to come and I'll clothe myself in humanity. I'm gonna walk the walk that they couldn't walk. I'm gonna live the life that they couldn't live. I will fully keep the law in their place and then I'm gonna lay my life down for them. No greater love than this but to lay one's life down for his friends. Nobody took Jesus' life. He laid it down for us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he does that as an act of justice so that so that God doesn't have to, can't, can't accept, can't justify the wicked. He doesn't have to if we're in Christ because he sees that Jesus has paid the price that I owed. So when you hear Paul talk about things when he says that, that no one has ever been, no one will ever be justified according to the law because nobody will ever be found justifiable, innocent according to the law. But we can be, we are, when we come to faith in Jesus and we let his righteousness be deposited into our account. And we come to him and we let what Hebrews 7.25 says, that God is willing, God is able to accept, to receive from the uttermost, from the guttermost, those who come to God through faith in Jesus. He's able to save us. And that's what is being said here. We need to remember that because that's what the law brings us to that conclusion. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's the opportunity for you to say, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I know that I'm guilty under the law, but I want to be saved. And I can take his righteous right hand that is reaching out to me. God fulfills his justice when he pours out his wrath upon Jesus and Jesus takes that cup in our place. But just notice that God will not justify the wicked and if we come in Christ, we've been made righteous in him. Verse 7, he says, keep yourself far from a false matter. And I love that, that that far just popped out to me. How close should we be to a false matter? Close enough to still be considered far away from it. Now that doesn't mean that we're not trying to reach those people or we're not sent into some of those situations as salt and light, but we're not to associate in that false matter taking those bribes or or allowing our discernment to be polluted. I love that he says that. You can be so discerning, able to understand right and wrong, able to understand light and dark, but you take a bribe, you take an offering, you take a gift, and all of a sudden it kind of pollutes it, right? You're kind of swayed now a little bit more to taking that person's side. It muddies the waters and can start to pervert or twist our words and motives. So keep yourself far from that situation. Verse 9, he just says it again, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember, this is the second time God has said this. We, We read the same thing last week. And not because he forgot, because it's that important. But many of us, we, we've been, we've probably traveled to a, a different country. We've, we've gone there on a mission trip. Maybe we've gone there on vacation. And you know what it's like to be a stranger in a foreign country. You know of the vulnerabilities that you feel when you're there. You, I don't understand this language. I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I don't know who I trust. I don't know the good parts of the town or the bad parts of the town. I don't know anything. And that puts us in a situation where we're vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And with that in mind, God says, I don't want you, my people to do that to the other people who are strangers in your land. I don't want you to take advantage of people. I don't want you to push people around. You know what that was like. And since I called you out of something, I want your behavior to be different than what you were once subjected to yourself. Don't be oppressive people. Don't be people who take advantage of people. Don't use people who are only going to benefit you. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm teaching you a better way. So don't do that, God says. You know what that was like. Verse 10, he says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. 
And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. God reiterating here, kind of expounding on the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And we see here it applies not only to your weeks, but also to your years. But the purpose here is it's the same. God is giving rest and refreshment to his people. That's what God wants. God wants for you and I rest and refreshment to take some time to recharge. But he says, I even want the land to have rest. And that's it's the same consistency that we've seen throughout the whole idea of the Sabbath that we talked about a few weeks ago. It's, a, it's an action of faith working itself in obedience. I want you to trust me and rest. I want you to trust me that I'm going to provide and rest. And as he's been setting up for them literally right here on the sixth day, giving them double the manna, double the bread on the sixth day so they have enough for the seventh day so they can rest. He says, I want you to trust me and do that with the years in seven-year cycles. Give the, give the land its sabbatic rest. But what God is promising here is every, every time that sixth year falls on a seven-year cycle, that sixth year is going to be a bumper, bumper crop. And it's going to be enough for the sixth year, enough for the seventh year, and enough to start the eighth year. That's what God promises, which is amazing, which is supernatural. But what is, what's it supposed to show you? God is our provider. God is the one who fulfills his promises. This is me in faith, trusting that he's going to keep what he promised he was going to keep. So he says, let your land rest. Let your vineyards and your groves rest. Let all those in your household rest. And I want you to think about that. Some of us are thinking, what is he saying? Every seventh year, we get to take a year's vacation? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Rest. Let the land rest. And some of us are thinking, that would be amazing. I, I think for us, we get a couple weeks, maybe a little bit more for a vacation in our culture. And most of us, we don't even take that much. But we're thinking, a year? A year of rest? That would be amazing. I would take advantage of that every single year. We would think the people that God is communicating this to, they would celebrate this. They would love this one. They would keep this every year, every seventh year with a smile on their faces. But do you know they, they never do this? Not one year do they give the land its rest. Not one year. God is going to send them into captivity. He'll make sure the land gets its rest, but to make up for 490 years, seven years, where they never do this one time. God is eventually going to send his people and give them the opportunity to obey, and they're not. And that's crazy because we say, well, why won't they keep it? Why, why wouldn't they do that? For the same reasons we have a hard time resting one day a week. Greed starts to take hold of our hearts. Because just like we're seeing here, God is faithful. And the year six is exactly what God says is going to be a bumper crop. And the people think, this is perfect. Now's my chance to really get ahead. I think, I know better than God. I don't really need rest this week. I don't need rest this year. I feel fresh enough. I'm just going to move forward on this. I'm going to sow in the fields for another year. I'm going to work seven days a week, 365. I want to make sure my barns and my storehouses and my bank account and my garage, I want to make sure that my situation is all taken care of then, then all rest. Then I'll sit back in ease and I'll obey the Lord. That mentality is riddled throughout our culture. But I want to remind you, Jesus teaches a parable about a rich man who lives with this exact mindset and Jesus makes it very clear how he thinks that mindset really is. This man spends his entire life acquiring things, filling his barns to overflowing to the point where his only problem that is left is I don't know where to put the rest of my things. So he says this, Luke 12 Verse 18 through 21. So the man says, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store up all my crops and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Now you can rest. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a word for us in our culture in much, as much in this day as it was for God's people here in this day. It's unchanging. It's been an eternal truth since the very moment God speaks into existence. 
But I want you to think about this. God is just saying, you don't know better than me. I created you. I love you. And I gave this Sabbath for your rest and refreshment, which I know you need. Don't argue with me. You don't need to argue with the Lord. He's right, right? If you're in an argument with the Lord, listen, he's right. He, he already won, right? He's right. But he says here in this situation, that mindset is foolish, Jesus, in wisdom, in love, says, that's foolish. Don't think like that. Don't spend your entire life thinking, I'm going to be rich on this end of eternity. He says, one day you're going to die, and all those things are going to go to someone else. And he says, and if you have no treasure in heaven, then you've wasted your life, and it will cost you all of eternity. Don't live like that's a foolish mindset. But that's what he's saying here. These sabbatic years, this, this Sabbath day of rest, it's for his people's own good. It's for a readjustment in our hearts, in our minds, in our very souls. It's a lot like this, but, but even greater. But, but, but many of us know this. The earth's solar orbit, the time it takes for the earth to rotate around the sun each year, it's 365 and a quarter days. And because of this, every four years in a leap year is an extra day added to the calendar, February 29th. We, I'd love hands to be raised. Any, any leap year babies out there, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. You're, you're special. Mama thinks you're special, and I think God thinks you're special too. But I'd love to hear from you. But we add that day to the calendar to readjust things back to God's astronomical timetable. Think about that. This extra day is for a readjustment. That is the heart behind this sabbatic year. That is God's heart behind a weekly Sabbath is for rest and refreshment and readjustment, right? R and R and R. And we need that. We, we need that for our very souls. Now, we're going to get all legalistic about it. It doesn't have to be a specific day. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. But I'm continuing to hammer this because we need one day. We need some time where we cease doing what we're doing. It'd be great to have a year. We'll get eternity at some point. But I just want you to know, make it your aim. Make it your priority to agree with God and say, you know, maybe I would, maybe I would have a lot better efforts loving the people around me if I rested a little bit more. Maybe I'd have a lot better effort if I let my life be readjusted back to God's timetable. Maybe I would have a lot better time being who God has called me to be if I just got some refreshment myself. We need that. We need to grant that to each other when the time comes, speaking of husbands and spouses. But it's for this purpose. I found this cool little poem. It says, To face life's many challenges and overcome each test, the Lord tells us, take the time to stop, to pray, and rest. Beautiful, and it rhymes. Verse 13, I just want to touch on this quick. It says, In all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. That's what we've been talking this whole thing. Is there a right way, and there is there a wrong way? And we were saying, yes, there is, and there's no right way to do the wrong thing. But we get that re- really right here in verse 13. In all that I have said to you, right? All means all, and that's all all means. And so God is saying, in everything that I've told you, I want you to be circumspect, which means I want you to guard your heart with diligence. I want you to watch where you're pointing your little feet. I want you to know that I expect you to keep this. I want you to obey me. We're going to see when Moses comes back down, the people are going to say, everything you've said, we will keep, we will do. And that is being circumspect. And we'll talk before we close about the, the heart being willing, but the flesh being weak, or the spirit being willing, but the flesh being weak. But I just want you to hold that. God says in all things, obey, be circumspect, be watchful, be diligent. Hold on to this. Verse 14, we're, we're closing this out sooner than later here. Three times, verse 14, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year, and you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you've gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
So here, as God starts to just kind of conclude this, they're getting closer here to what he's going to, to finally command and move on to the tabernacle. God tells Moses about the three pilgrimage feasts that he wants his people to keep annually. Things that are supposed to be done to keep his people mindful of what God has done, who the Lord God is, who he's shown himself to be, and they, how they can stay in this place being mindful to obey. We, we see in verse 17, these are mandated. All the men are commanded to do this or to travel to this designated place where this feast is going to be held. The women are not prevented from going there. They're not prohibited. They're, they're certainly welcome to come, but they're not commanded to come. Just the males. God is speaking to the men and commanding them. But these three feasts, he says, the first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is a seven-day feast where you're going to eat only unleavened bread. And, and we kind of, we think about this feast a little bit kind of as the Feast of Passover because the first, really the day before the seven-day feast begins is the day of Passover. So as you're preparing your heart for Passover, as you're moving all the leaven from your house, you're going to celebrate the Passover, being reminded of what God did for his people in Egypt, how he accepted the blood of a lamb when its blood was put on the doorposts and lentils, that sign of the cross. God accepted that and passed over their house in judgment, sparing the firstborn and breaking the grip of Pharaoh to deliver them out of Egypt. He says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. And they leave. They don't have time to let their bread rise. They're they're leaving Egypt. So it's a time to remember all that God did in his deliverance from Egypt in this time. So remember it annually. Now for us as Christians, we can look back at this feast and we can see God has fulfilled it. Jesus came and in his first coming, he fulfilled this. He is the Passover lamb. He was crucified on Passover. We saw, we saw all that was set up there. We've talked about that in studies past, but I just want you to know that God has fulfilled this first piece, this first feast through Jesus in his first coming. The second feast is called the Feast of Harvest in verse 16. This is a feast of first fruits. It's also called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. As soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over, they're to count seven weeks, 49 days. That's where it gets the name, the Feast of Weeks. It's called here, though, the Feast of Harvest. And then that 50th day is Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. But the people are celebrating the beginning of harvest that is to come. It's a celebration of what God is doing, the the wheat is ready in the field. It's ready to harvest. And what they would do is they'd grab the first sheaf, the first thing that they harvest, and they take it to the Lord. And they wave it in front of him and say, God, it all belongs to you. We have all of this because of what you've done. You are our provider. You are the Lord. And so here, this first fruits is for you, God. Thank you. And it just keeps their hearts right. It keeps them in a place of understanding who the Lord is and what he's done. But this is another one we know as Christians, this was fulfilled when Jesus comes in his first coming after his his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Remember, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise, uh, from the promise of the Father, the power from on high. They're waiting in the upper room on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God is poured out upon them. The church is birthed, supernatural signs, wonders, the gifts of the Spirit are on display. Peter comes, preaches the gospel and 3,000 get saved. That's the, the fulfillment. What was it? It was the first fruits. It was just that first gathering of the wheat that was going to be harvested and has been harvested for 2,000 years. You and I were a part of that same harvest that has been, that has been initiated since that first day. But that's the feast of harvest that, that the Lord fulfills. But check this out. The third feast here is called the feast of ingathering. Notice that this occurs at the end of the year. Once the harvest is over, the end of all the labors in the fields have been completed. Then the people come together again in gratitude for what God has done for them. They would live in tents. They would live in booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, but it's the same annual feast. But notice, unlike the first two, this feast was not fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Now you may hear, well, well, didn't Jesus come and tabernacle with us? He's called Emmanuel. You may even hear, and there's a strong case to be made. Wasn't Jesus born around the time of the Feast of Ingathering? Yeah, I would agree with both of those, sure. But we have not seen the end of the harvest yet, which means we haven't seen the ingathering yet. And Jesus himself, when he's asked about this, he describes what sounds like the fulfillment 
fulfillment of the in-gathering to me. At the end of the age, there will be a, a final gathering and there, there will be a separation between the wheat and the tares. Then and there, there will be a separation between the sheep and the goats. A final in-gathering in Jesus' second coming. Christians, Jesus is coming again. And he's told us what we should be watching for, but it's all going to be an in-gathering where the labors are complete. A final separation. But we're seeing things that are set up that are leading and, bre- and building excitement in our hearts towards the thing. Not things that we're making up, but things that Jesus told us. I'm referencing some things in Matthew 24 when Jesus starts to describe it as birth pangs, as the signs of pregnancy nearing full term in a pregnant woman. Jesus answering directly the question, what are the signs that your coming is near, that this ingathering is about to be fulfilled? He says, wars, rumors of wars, check. Nations rising against nation, check. Famines, check. Pestilence, check earthquakes check listen to this persecution many will be offended and betray one another they will hate one another the love of many will grow cold check we're seeing these things we're living in this time signs that the end of the age is near i'm just commissioning you christians we are children of the day not my words jesus's words we're we're watchful we're aware of what is going on but it's all building towards what god is speaking here of a third annual feast that will be fulfilled the feast of ingathering marked at the end of the age when the harvest is complete so just know that. There's so much more to talk about there, but we're running out of time. Verse 19 is, is an interesting verse, and it's kind of thrown out here. He says, you shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. And, and we're kind of thinking, okay. And I imagine Moses saying, okay, God, I mean, you're the Lord. If you're, you want to speak it, I'll write it down. But I don't really know what's going on there. And, and what is going on there? Well, we don't know exactly. There's a few different speculative op- interpretations of what this verse is meaning. Some are saying this is referring to a Canaanite ritual, something that they're going to see done in the land that God is calling them to live. They're, they're doing this as a sign of fertility or for, for a, an act of prosperity. They're, it's a false way to worship a false god and idol is one opportunity that is going on. And so God says, hey, you don't even need to understand this, but when you see the opportunity, when you're in this situation, you better obey this. But I, I don't know, he doesn't say it directly, but I think eating Lucky Charms in goat's milk is still okay. So just, you know, rest at ease. Don't, don't put yourself under the law where there is no law. But here in this situation, we're going to stop because there's just too much left in chapter 23, and I just want to spare you from back-to-back long Bible studies. But I want to come to this situation that we, that we opened our study with. There is a right way, and there is a wrong way, and it's not because I said so. It's because God says so. It's because God's word brings us to a crossroads. God's word brings us to an intersection in our lives. And that's the whole point of this title. With each decision, with with each situation and circumstance that we face, knowing now there's no right way to do the wrong thing, knowing now who the Lord God is, we have a decision to make. Am I going to go the right way or am I going to go the wrong way? Am Am I going to choose to obey or am I going to choose to do things my own way? That is what is faced in every situation that we go through. All week, we have decisions just like this. And what I'm asking you to do is please let the Lord sit on the forefront of your heart. Let the Lord be there in the midst of that decision. Ask God to show you and guide you. That's, that's one of the ways that we can apply this to our lives, so we can put it into practice. But I like it said this, God's law expresses God's heart simply said, this is God's heart. This is God's perfect will for how he wants his people to live. We know it's perfect because he spoke it and he's perfect. So we're called to live right in this world that is wrong. This is God's heart to do that. We're called to reflect him. We're called to represent him. We kind of think, but how do we do that? How are we supposed to be different? And here's the other half of that. In Christ, as Christians, We've been made alive. We've been born again. And what have we received? Well, in addition to forgiveness and acceptance and a church family and and a ton of other amazing things, we've also received the spirit of the living God. Not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power. We've received God's spirit and God's spirit is given to us for one way to live God's way. So we no longer have to fulfill the desires of the flesh, but we can be led by the Spirit. We can be empowered by the Spirit to live out God's heart. Not because if we do, we are saved, but because we're saved already. 
because that's what he's done for us. So here's our, here's our main takeaway. God's law is God's heart. God's law is God's will. It's his path for us to live the right way. No arguments. I'm asking you to accept that as it is. No arguments. That's what it says. But God's spirit is God's power for us to be able to do it. God's spirit is his enablement for us to be able to follow through what he's laid out for us. So God's law, God's heart, God's spirit, God's power, and in Christ, we have all of it. In Christ, it all comes together. So as we submit to God's word, as we ask to be filled with his spirit, now we go out and we want to represent the right way and the wrong way in a holy, loving way to all those people that our lives are interacting with. That's our commission. And so I want to encourage you to do, accept that, submit to that, ask the Lord for help in that, but no questions, no justifications, no wiggle room. Just come to the Lord with a broken and contrite spirit and say, God, help me be who you've created me to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, I know that a text like this, a text like we've been in for the past several weeks, Father, it's, it's black and it's white. Lord, it, it's right and it's wrong. There's your will and there's your commands. And here we are. Here we see your people. There's no negotiation. It's just yes and Amen. And I pray that that would be hitting our hearts. Father, I know that we as human beings, we have a, just this rebellious nature. And I pray that that would be crucified. I pray that we'd all be reminded, maybe just ever so briefly this morning, we've all ran our lives aground going our own way. We've all had to come to this place where we say, God, you know better. And so I just pray that there's, there's nothing in us that's trying to question or, or wrestle out of the grip that we've placed ourselves in. There's nowhere else we'd rather be, Lord God. You have the words of life. You are life. You are a good shepherd. And you have great plans for all of us, plans of a future and a hope. And Father, we just want to remain as as we abide in you and trust you. We pray now for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to to walk in these things, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our enemies, to love those who hate us. Father, to seek to represent you in all things, God, so you would be glorified, Jesus. I just pray that you would just continue that work in our hearts. Write this, your word, again, afresh and anew on our hearts. Fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit as you send us back out into this world to be salt and light and bring glory to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.